how Rabbi Gladstein ended up uh, being a guest on this show. I was actually listening to a class of his on Torah Anytime. And I was planning on only getting a few bits and details um, of the class because someone told me that it was a remarkable, a remarkable thought. And I ended up being so drawn in that I watched it from beginning to end. It's a little bit of an advanced class. So if you want to see some of his classes on Torah Anytime, then uh, it's better if you have a, a more sophisticated command of, of Hebrew language. It's, it's definitely worthwhile um, if you do. Rabbi Gladstein is, in addition to being a community rabbi, he delivers a very popular uh, weekly Parsha class, from what I gather. Uh, he's often invited to serve as a guest speaker in yeshivas and Torah institutions across the tri-state area. And his classes have been receiving enthused, being received enthusiastically by audiences of all backgrounds and affiliations. I keep hearing his name pop up. Did you hear this class by Rabbi Gladstein? Um, and so after I listened to this class, I said, I have to get him on the show to share this thought with you, because I don't think that you'll ever look at Purim the same again after this. If you want to uh, listen to the class or the extended version, you can go to TorahAnytime.com. Um, his website, his personal website is RabbiDG.com. And um, without further ado, Rabbi Gladstein, are you there? I'm here. Thank you so much for this uh, amazing opportunity. Very excited to uh, be able to share some of these thoughts with the audience. Thank um, you for joining us. Pleasure. Um, I feel very connected to, to uh, Partners in Torah because I've actually been uh, a partner in Torah for over 20 years. <laughs> so, this is true. Can you tell us about your partner? Well, I started, I've had two partners in the last 20 years. I started with one partner in uh, Fort Worth, Texas on a seed program when I was uh, a teenager. And I learned with that individual, I remember his name, Mayor Glickman. I learned with him for 10 years. Wow! And, <laughs> he, and then at his wedding, he introduced me to a friend of his who, he said, you know, you need to learn with Gene. And that was the last thing on my mind when I went to Mayor Glickman's wedding the next thing I knew, Jean had, uh, Mayor had moved to Israel and Jean was my new partner. And uh, sometimes I remember, sometimes I forget, but Jean is always calling me on Wednesdays. He called me this afternoon. I, I spoke in Boca last night. I was dead tired today. And all of a sudden my phone rings and it was Jean, Donnie, let's go. We have to, it's Wednesday. Let's hit it. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Did you get uh, wished a happy anniversary when your anniversary came around? I, I do. Gene always reminds me. He. <laughs> when did you start learning with him? About ten years ago. About I mean, do we remember what month so that we could have to make sure that you got your happy anniversary? Okay, we'll have to we'll have to work that out. I'm expecting really remarkable. Every week in our newsletter, <laughs> we have the the lists of people who are celebrating their anniversaries, and it's so inspiring for me to see the incredible longevity of these relationships. Yeah. It means that people are learning consistently. And it's riding on the path. People love to connect to other people. And Torah is so much more alive when it's within a conversation. Absolutely. When you, when you listen to a class. So thank you very much for, for being a partner um, with Partners in Torah for so long. Um, my honor, yes. Thank you. Okay, take it away. Okay. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. I want to share with you what, to me, I consider the central theme of the Purim story. And I know you've seen a lot about Purim, and you've seen a lot about the story, and in our minds, the important theme of the Purim story is each isolated event in and of itself may not seem remarkable, it may not seem miraculous, but what's really significant 
Uh, and what's really important about the story is how everything strings together and we have no choice but to acknowledge that someone is pulling the strings. But what I would like to bring to your attention today is a completely new dimension to the story and with Hashem's help, when we're privy to get this insight into the story, this is something that is a common thread and a common theme throughout the story. And we will see that this is a theme throughout Jewish history, and this is a theme in our own lives. So I would like to start the story by going to the very end of the story. In the last chapter of Megillah Esther, in the final chapter of the Megillah, that's uh, chapter 10, in the first verse, Parakyot, Pasuk Aleph, the Megillah seems to end off rather unceremoniously. The Megillah says, okay, here's the climax of the story, here's the, the pinnacle of God's divine hand in orchestrating events. King Ahasuerus placed a tax on all the residents of his sovereignty. The Talmud teaches us that Ahasuerus ruled the known world. He was what is called Malach Bekipa, he ruled over the globe. And uh, he was the most powerful monarch of the time, one of the most powerful monarchs in the history of the world. And the climax of the Purim story is that Ahasuerus taxes the people. And I ask you, who cares? Is that really the way the story should end? Is that really that significant? It's irrelevant. It seems like such unimportant information that Ahasuerus taxes the people. I mean, how many people care about anybody's tax plan? Is this really the final cherry on top of God's pulling the string in the Purim story? So it hit me that if we can sort of pierce the veil and uncover the way the Ribbon the way God Almighty is pulling the strings in this narrative, this may be the most miraculous detail of the Purim story of all. We know... It's very interesting. Ahasuerus one night, if you remember in the story, he can't sleep. He has such anxiety. He's so worried. He doesn't know somebody wants to kill him. He has enemies. He, he's tossing and turning the whole night. And just then, his advisors say, guess what? You know who's coming? You know who's in the courtyard of the king? Ahasuerus says, who? Haman's coming. And the verse says, Haman was coming to ask Ahasuerus to hang Mordechai on the tree Asher Heichin Loi. Literally, that Haman prepared for him. That Haman prepared for Mordechai. We know Haman made a gallows, 50 almost tall, about 100 feet tall, to hang Mordechai on it. And Haman was coming to ask Ahasuerus for permission to, to hang him. The verse says, on the tree he prepared for him. And the Talmud observes... Let the verse just say he was coming to hang Mordechai on the tree that he prepared. Why does it have to say on the tree that he prepared for him? Says the Talmud, this has a deeper meaning. Then Haman thought he was making the gallows to hang Mordechai. But in reality, he was preparing it to hang him, meaning to hang himself. Little did Haman know that on the very gallows that he was making, which he thought he was going to hang Mordechai on, God orchestrated that Haman will ultimately hang on those very gallows. This Gemara, which is one line of Gemara, like all statements of our sages, literally is the flash of lightning 
that completely revolutionizes our understanding of the Purim story. Because what the Rebunish Shalom is doing, what God is doing, is that as Haman is building that gallows, God is looking down from heaven and he says, Haman, you fool, you think you're plotting to kill the king? <laughs> oh no, you're not plotting. You, you think you're plotting to kill Mordechai? I am going to take your plan and your scheme and your machination and I'm going to kill you. I'm going to hang you on the very gallows that you intended to hang Mordechai on. We don't give God enough credit in terms of his control of life and history. We think if we have an enemy and we have somebody out to get us, the only way God could take care of this is he's going to have to knock him off. He's going to have to completely foil the plot. Give God more credit than that. You know what he could do? He could take the scheme, the machination, the plan of the enemy, hijack, co-opt that plan, and use that plan to accomplish what God wants. Haman is case in point. Hashem used the very gallows that Haman made to hang Mordechai, to hang Haman. Let me give you a, a well-known example from the Chumash, from the narrative of the Bible. And from there we're going to... Uh, Come to one particular incident in the Megillah, and you'll see how it all ties together. So remember the guy, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Paro gets word one day from his astrologers, you know, we see in the stars that the savior of the Jewish people, the man who's going to take your whole workforce out of the country and, and deplete the whole economy, he's going to be born today. And Paro says, oh no, Paro's sweating, Paro can't, he, he doesn't know what to do. So Paro says, I have a great idea. We'll just have to exterminate every single child that is born today. We're going to throw them in the Nile. They're going to be eaten by the asp and the crocodile. And sure enough, every kid that's born, thrown into the Nile, crocodile comes, bam. I was recently in Phoenix. I visited a zoo. If you get within three feet of a crocodile, with lightning speed, they will snap at a piece of meat so quickly, it's as if it never existed. And every child was thrown into the Nile and they just disappeared like that. And God is looking down from heaven and he says, Paro, you really think you're going to eradicate the Savior of the Jewish people? Watch this, Paro. Baby Moshe is put into the Nile. He's floating through the Nile River. Paro's daughter comes. She hears a child crying. She brings the child in. She swaddles the child. She cradles the child. She brings the child into Paro's palace. It's 3 a.m. And Moshe's having a hard time sleeping. And his daughter is so tired. It's been a long day. And she calls out there and says, Hey, Dad, I'm so tired. Would you mind cradling this child? So here it is. Paro is in his pajamas in the middle of the night. And he's cradling the future savior of the Jewish people. He's putting him to sleep. And then 4 a.m., Basio Parazor say, Hey, Dad, you know, we're out of formula. You want to run to CVS and get some more formula? Paro says, uh, okay. And she said, You know what? I don't have any money. Would you mind uh, put it on your American Express card? So Paro puts the kid to sleep at night, gets the kid formula, pays for the formula, raises the child, um, develops the child. In fact, the commentators explain why did the Divine Providence have it that Moshe Rabbeinu should grow up in an Egyptian palace. Why couldn't he grow up with the rest of the Jews? So they explain it. This was for a vital purpose. That it was, if Moshe Rabbeinu would have grown up with the rest of the Jewish people, they had a low morale. They had a slave mentality. Moshe never would have developed 
He never would have cultivated leadership qualities. So Moshe Rabbeinu had to grow up in Paro's palace. So Paro could groom Moshe to be the ultimate leader and king of the Jewish people. So Pharaoh, you think you're eradicating the savior of the Jewish people. Not only is your decree not eradicating the, the king of the Jewish people. You are grooming. You are creating. You are, he's growing up in your palace. You will bring him to fruition. You will develop him so that ultimately he's going to take out the very people who you want to keep in. This is how God is able to operate. He doesn't need to destroy the enemy. He doesn't need to eradicate the enemy. He says, hey, enemy, you give me your plan, your scheme, and I will co-opt and hijack your plan to bring about what I need to bring to fruition. Let me give you one example from the Megillah, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. You know, in the, in the beginning of the story, Ahasuerus has a problem with his wife. He orders his wife to come display herself. She refuses. Ahasuerus doesn't know what to do. And the Megillah recounts how Ahasuerus has to ask advice from his councilmen. I mean, this is not a democracy over here. If Ahasuerus, the emperor, the king of the world, has a problem with his wife, why doesn't he do what every Caesar did? So, so kill her. That's what was done in the ancient times. Why is he asking the advice of his councilmen? It's not the United States of America. Furthermore, in the end of the Purim story, when Esther reveals what Haman wanted to do to the Jewish people, and Ahasuerus is fuming and he steps out, and Haman pleads with Esther, and the Megillah recounts that Haman took a misstep with Esther, and Ahasuerus came in and it looked like Haman was making advances to Esther, and Ahasuerus now is pulling out his hair, he doesn't know what to do, and this guy, this advisor, Charvona, says, Hey, Ahasuerus, why don't you hang Haman? And Ahasuerus says, Yeah, great idea, I'm going to hang Haman. How's he allowed to do that? Why doesn't he ask his advisors over there? So it's very interesting. The Vilna Gain, one of the great commentators on the Megillah, points out that even though in Persia it was a theocracy, it was a monarchy, nevertheless the law in the land was that any time a, any time a situation was relevant to the king himself, he was required to ask the advice of officials and governors. And that is why when Ahasuerus didn't know what to do with Vashti, he was required to ask the advice of his advisors. But the Megillah says there was a man by the name of Memuchan. And Memuchan gets up and he says, Ahasuerus, this is such a ridiculous law in Persia that you, the monarch of the world, have to ask the advice of, of your officials. I suggest that we legislate the following law from now on. From now on, you call all the shots. You make a unilateral decision. You don't ask anyone's advice. Now, who was Memuchan who passed this law? The Talmud says it was none other than Haman himself. And Haman's intent in passing this law was giving Ahasuerus as much power as possible for his own promotion. Haman, we really appreciate you passing this law in Persia. Because now that Ahasuerus makes a unilateral, could make a unilateral decision. When you take that misstep with Esther at the end of the story, Ahasuerus doesn't have to ask anybody's advice. Now, you make the own, your own call, Ahasuerus. And you say, hang Haman. And you don't have to ask anybody. Haman thinks he's promoting himself and God is looking down from heaven. And God's sa- saying, Haman, you're bringing about your own demise. And I consider the following insight literally a gift from heaven. You know, when you learn Torah, 
it, it is, as mentioned before, it's relationship with Hashem. The learning of Torah is the deepest relationship we have with Hashem. And often, when one applies himself to learning Torah, Hashem grants us additional insight. And I was learning a book of Tanakh, one of the scriptures, say for Ezra. And there it talks about how about 10 years after the Purim story, the Jews make attempt to return to the Holy Land. And they want to rebuild the second temple, but they're stuck. They have no money. They can't finance it. They can't pay for its building. So they turn to the reigning monarch. His name was Darius, Daryavesh. You know who Darius is? Darius is the son of Achashverosh and Esther. And they say, Dear Darius, I know, we know you've allowed us to rebuild the temple, but we can't afford it. And Darius says, Hey, no problem. And the verse reveals to us that Darius says, We're going to open up the royal treasuries and give over to you all the money, all the tax money in the royal treasuries to fund the building of the second temple. And friends, I ask you, where did Darius get all this tax money? And the answer is very clear. All the taxes that Achashverosh collected at the end of the Purim story went to the royal treasury, Achashverosh dies, Darius inherits all the money, and Darius funds the building of the second temple with all the tax money Achashverosh collects. Think about how the Purim story has come full circle. The story begins that Achashverosh is celebrating that 70 years have passed and the temple is not rebuilt, and Achashverosh says, ah, the temple is not rebuilt, the temple will never be rebuilt. And Achashverosh is celebrating what he thought was the eternal destruction of the second temple, of the Beis HaMikdash. And God is looking down from heaven and he says to Achashverosh, you fool, you think you're celebrating the eternal destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash. This party will bring about the demise of of Vashti. You're going to call Vashti to display herself. She ain't going to come. You're going to need a new queen. You're going to marry Esther. From Esther, you're going to have a child, Daryavesh. You're going to collect taxes. You're going to give the money to Daryavesh. And he's going to build the second temple. Hey, Achashverosh, you think you're dis- you're celebrating Chorban. You think you're celebrating destruction of the temple. This party is the source of the rebuilding of the temple. By the end of the Purim story, Achashverosh has become the chief fundraiser <laughs> of the second Beis HaMikdash. That is the ultimate irony of the Purim story and the pinnacle, the summit of God's divine, divine providence. And I realized that this is a manner of control that God uses and displays throughout history. One example that I'm sure we're all aware of, but maybe is not in focus. The, great, the second most powerful and, and influential and wealthy Jewish community in history was Spanish Jewry in the 15th century, the golden age of Spain. But King Ferdinand, Queen Isabella, they're committed to their mission of reconquesta, of conquering the Iberian Peninsula, and they're going to eradicate any influence, any vestige of Jewish power and prestige, and they expel 3,000 Jews in 1492, and in their mind, August 2nd, Tisha B'Av, Thursday, 1492, marked the end of Jewish power in the known world. But it's recorded in the archives of Seville that on that very day, there was a cabin boy who was in a boat 
being taken to Africa as a slave. And he reports that he saw docked on the harbor in Spain, ready to set sail the next day, Friday, August 3rd, 1492. Was the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, the three ships of Christopher Columbus, who was paid by Ferdinand and Isabella to make an attempt to discover the new world. Hey, Ferdinand! Hey, Isabella! You think you're bringing about the demise of Jewish power? You think you're going to destroy the Jewish people? It's a joke! God is going to use you! You're going to pay Columbus to discover the greatest haven the world has ever known for the Jewish community. A community where the influence of the, the American Jewish community surpassed any European Jewish community. Ferdinand Isabella, you think you're going to bring about the demise of Judaism. You will be the instrument in the hand of God to bring about the success of the future of the Jewish people. And this is something we always have to bear in mind. We always, uh, whether current events, politics, we have certain candidates that we have in our mind. We need this man in office, this officer, this governor, he'll be good for the Jews. They'll be good for Israel. The other candidate will never overcome Give God more credit than that. He could take anybody. Anybody could be in office. And even if somebody who we would never expect to be helpful to us, the Yvonne Shalom says, that's the man, that's the person who I would like to use to demonstrate my control. Our prophets teach us their amazing upcoming events in the future of the Jewish people. Coming attractions. The coming of the ultimate redemption. So all we need to do, sit back, relax, enjoy the show. The Rebbe has everything under control. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't be despondent. Just when you think that this is a hurdle or a challenge, Rebbe says, that's exactly what I want. That's the string, that's the tool that I'm going to use to bring me, to bring you, to bring our community, to bring the Jewish people the greatest happiness, the greatest success, and ultimately the redemption we're all hoping for. Thank you so much for this amazing opportunity. And I wish everybody Purim Sameach, Afrelech and Purim, happy Purim to all. And we should only see Suros Tovos, good tidings for all of us. Thank you so much. Amen, amen. Thank you, thank you for those incredible words.